It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn those to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to walk through the 19... I'm going to read through the 19 verses, and then we as a body will read, will walk through it together. Again, if your Bible is open to Hebrews 3, let's go. Uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is, the faith, is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ." If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did we, he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verses 1 through 6, Therefore, holy brothers, yet again, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Confession for us is different. It's a word that we use differently than the people that the writer slash preacher of the letter slash sermon of Hebrews was would understand the word. When we talk about confessions, it's typically because we've done something bad. You more than likely confessed a wrongdoing at some point in your life. Are there any parents in the room? Hands up. I will see those hands. I will affirm those hands. Have you ever had a conversation that went a little bit like this? Did you punch your sister? And you are expecting the confession of yes. Maybe you are a driver and there has been a point in your life where you were on 288 and your desire to get back to the mosquitoes got the best of you. 
and a nice man with shiny lights on the top of his car pulled you over and he asked you a question that you do not really want to answer. Do you know that you were driving too fast? Yes. Chad and Jared, did you eat some of those light the night candy bars that sat here for a few weeks back in October? And the answer is, absolutely not. <laughs> we confess what we've done wrong. And because that is our historic, typical understanding of confession, when we read that Jesus is our confession, we may not realize that it doesn't mean that. This isn't a wrongdoing thing. This is something different. Our confession is not owning up to all that we have done wrong. But this confession is us verbally affirming all that God has done right for us in Jesus. This is us as a body of believers reading through the book of Hebrews saying everything that God has done in Jesus has been done right. So when we look at this text, verses 1 through 6, and we evaluate that we're saying that he is more than Moses, what we're saying is what God has done for us in Jesus is that he has provided a deliverer, but not simply a deliverer limited in time and space, but we have a deliverer who is unlimited in either of those things. So when we read and we consider who Jesus is, we see that what Moses in actuality was doing was setting us up to be people who would understand Christ, who would know Christ. I love this passage and I love that in the very first verse of chapter 3, as a result of all that we dealt with in chapters 1 and 2, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That word calling is really important. Now we use it a good bit in the church and there are times we probably use it improperly. But when we talk about the word calling, the root word for that is this Hebrew word for called out. It, so when we talk about calling for a pastor, like the Lord has called Jared to be a pastor of our church. He does that through mission. He does that through worship. God called him out to that. The same word is the word that we use for the church. The root word is the same. The church has been called out. That word does not and is not limited to those two concepts. That word for called out is it's where we get the word election. That God has called us out as his people. Jared chose to read from another portion of Paul's letters where we talk about how God has done that. From, because God is unbound by time, unbound by space. He's called his people to himself from outside of our current situation because in actuality we are dead apart from him, but in Christ there is life. The, the called out ones, it's tied to that. We cannot understand what it means for us to live for Jesus or be the church of Jesus apart from God calling us out of something. And he has called us out of death. He's called us out of sin. He has called us out of hell. And he, Jesus has been counted worthy, verse 3 says, to receive more glory than Moses. Now, not a lot of Orthodox Jews roaming around our worship center this morning. If so, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. 
But when you read this passage, if you have any Jewish background whatsoever for the passage to say that Jesus should receive more glory than Moses, that is hard to hear because Moses was the biggest of big deals in the Old Testament. He is more important than Abraham in the eyes of the Jewish people. He is more important than anyone that would come after him. Moses is the deliverer of the people. This would be the equivalent of us using a phrase. So I know we've got generational gaps in the room. If you grew up and you were a boxing fan in the 60s and 70s, there was a boxer named Cassius Clay. He would eventually change his name to Muhammad Ali. And this is the equivalent of someone saying that, Muhammad, that someone is a better fighter than Muhammad Ali. And you're, No, he floated like a butterfly. He stung like a bee. You don't understand how boxing works. As a child of the 90s, my era, I was a huge basketball fan. I still am. There was a gentleman named Michael Jordan. That's still his name. It's not been changed. This is saying that someone is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. That is a popular argument in 2019. And I would love to refute the issues with that at any point that you would like to sit down. The Jewish people, when you say that someone is more than Moses, are hearing that the way that Boxing fans from the 60s and 70s would hear, this fighter's better than Ali. They're hearing that the way that basketball fans would hear, this player is better than Jordan. Honestly, you can't say that because our Moses, according to the Old Testament, he got to speak face to face with God. But Jesus... did not simply speak face to face with God. Jesus, according to Colossians 1, is God's face revealed to us. He's the image of the invisible God. He has been made fully known to us. Now every house is built by someone. Of course, writer of the book of Hebrews. But God has built all things... Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. That's not to take away from all that God has done in Moses. But it is letting us know that God did a great work in Moses by showing us and delivering to us what we can call the letter of the law. But in Jesus, God has gone beyond that in that he has shown us the heart of the law. The heart behind all of the all that he has said and done. Our understanding of God is fully dependent on Jesus. Jesus crucified. Jesus resurrected. Jesus crucified and resurrected is the central tenet of Christianity. If you do not believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then friend, you may be showing up here on Sunday mornings, but you are not a Christian by the very definition of what a Christian is. We look at this passage and we see that 
what God says to us in verse 5. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all of God's house, not as a servant, but as a son. And not just in the son sense of an adolescent, the son in the scriptural concept of God's full authority has been shown in Jesus. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now hold fast is tricky. Because we understand hold fast differently than the Bible that understands hold fast. For us, hold fast is what takes place at one of the car lots as you drive down the interstate and you know they're having a competition where if you'll just go there and put your hand on that Ford Focus longer than the other people who have their hand on the Ford Focus, that you'll win the car. That's holding fast. It's our endurance, our sustaining, all of those things. It's what takes place on Survivor. I used to be a Survivor head. I loved the television show Survivor. And they will have a competition when they have worn those people down and they have gotten rid of the moderately obese middle-aged men to the point where they're just skin and bones. They'll have competitions where they are standing on a pole and to tempt them to leave the pole... They will bring out various things. I don't know what your thing would be if you're standing on a pole on day 27 and you've not eaten delicious things but you want to eat delicious things. Maybe you're on the pole and you, they bring out Reese's peanut butter cups. Is that your thing? I've not had a Reese's cup in 27. Anybody? That's not your thing. That's okay. That's okay. You can be wrong here. It's fine. Maybe for you it's the cheeseburger. They bring out a cheeseburger and all that you've been eating is leaves and worms for 27 days. Our idea of holding fast is that. I'm going to cling to this. I'm going to never let go of this. Holding fast is not for us the way that we achieve salvation. Holding fast in light of what the writer of the book of Hebrews says is what salvation is. It's we hold fast to what we confessed at the beginning. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ as God's full revelation. That's who God is. I'm going to hold fast to that. Knowing that there is a great possibility that life will get more difficult than it happens to be today. There is a grand chance that three months from now, your life will be more difficult than it is today. That four years from now, your life will be more difficult than it is today. And we know that, right? We don't know what doctors are going to tell us over the next three months. We don't know what age will do to us over the next four years. I will be truthful with you. At the age of 21, I had no realization whatsoever that at the age of 41, I would wake up and hurt in places that I did not know had muscles. <laughs> Holding fast, knowing that circumstances will come that are hard. 
Because after all, we, we like a, a, a good point of a story where it says, now, after all of your struggle, that's the story of the Jewish people. You've struggled, you've been captive to the Egyptians, they've not been kind to you, they've been harsh towards you. Moses comes with these ten infestations because the Pharaoh will not listen. He eventually delivers you and now that's why they love him so much. That's their deliverer. Everything about their freedom is tied to him. How could anyone ever question him? They look to him as this great champion when they're in the rear view. But the Jewish people, he wasn't a champion all the time. They mumbled and murmured about him. Which gives hopes to pastors everywhere. You see that in verses 7 through 11. We're more than Mo- we see that he is more than Moses. And he gives us this timeless truth. Go with me. As the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 days, I was provoked with that generation and said to them, They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, we trust that this truth has cultural implications for the people of Israel. This is specifically about a group of people who, for all intent and purposes, were dum-dums. But it's also about you and me. Because this is bigger than this moment. God's truths for us have no limitation. There is a context here that stretches his arms out into rooms like this. Think about it. Think about what they walk through. Think about how their lives transitioned and shifted when they were delivered. There he is. Let's look to Moses. And then things got bad. Our first winter here, it snowed. And I was conveniently speaking in Birmingham that weekend. But if you've ever been around snow, there is this initial, ah. And if you're in Lake Jackson, there's like, what is that? But if you're there at your house, kids first snow, they look out the window. That's so amazing. I love, this is so good to look at. Mom is the safest driver in the home. She goes to the grocery store to pick up some things. Dad begins to rally the troops. Let's go outside and play because they're begging to go play. Am I right, moms and dads? They just beg the whole time. Let's go play in that cold stuff that feels icky. They get outside. Let's play outside. Yes. Snow's here. Yes. Let's play outside. Yes. But then they're wet in 30 seconds. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. It's, it's honestly kind of gross. The sun starts to shine. It turns into ice. Everyone loves to play in snow. No one wants to play in ice. You try to go back in the house and the door's locked behind you because dad is not always the brightest apple on the tree. 
But you're enduring in the middle of this snowy, icy mess, this mush, this mud-infused mush. While you wait for mom to get home. When mom gets home, she's got the hot chocolate. She's also got the key, which is more important than the hot chocolate. You endure, and her provision helps you to do that. The nation of Israel was going through the wilderness. and Yes, we've been delivered. Yes, we've got direction. Yes, we're headed somewhere. But it got hard. Look, our hard days are coming. If you've not been through them yet, they are coming. If we see anything in the scriptures, we see God saying to his people, hold on, hold fast, trust me, trust me, trust me. What you confess, don't walk away from that. But this church for the book of Hebrews, the people who were being talked to in these passages, of course we want a Savior. But with a Savior comes a king. And we are in this broken world. Enemy-occupied territory is what one Christian thinker called it. We are people who are going through the difficulties. Some of the people, because times were tough, in the Old Testament, in that Numbers account from 14 that is really wrapped up in chapter 3, they fell away because it was hard And I believe that all of us know people who have walked away from this, fallen away from this scriptural truth of who God is because it just gets hard. So what can we do and what can we learn? How do we galvanize people of faith around the message of Jesus? How do we encourage those who are believers and continually call those who are not to repentance if they're going to be around us? What are steps that we can take? What are provisions that we can make so that people who are in rooms like this on this day of March 2019 will will be here to hear these truths and be part of what God's doing on March the whatever of 2026, will God actually provide for us something that's really important? He provides community. And that community, the community of faith, the community of being the people of God, is not so we can just sit in rooms that have wood pallets exploding around us, but so that we can march forward together. Think about this. We'll go 12 and 13. Let's roll. Take care, brothers, lest lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I love the writer of Hebrews because he uses this we over and over. And that we lets us know this is plurality. We're not talking about the odd variant of Christianity that has been propped up 
for much of American culture. The Christianity that says that it's just you and Jesus. Now we love that. But that's not what the Bible talks about. You do have a personal relationship with Jesus that makes you part of something bigger. And if you are not living as part of something bigger, then hear me, at best, you are not living out optimally what it means to follow Jesus. And there is a slight, a quite a possibility that you no, have no faith to begin with. Let's go through what the Bible says. Now, I'll mention, or let's think through this for just a moment. What the Bible says to us about what we're unified to and who we're unified with. Think about the people around us. How much do you really have in common with them? What is our commonality? How many of you were raised in a home with both parents? Anybody? Okay, cool. How many of you dealt with divorce as a kid? Anybody? That was me at my house. Dealt with divorce as a kid. How many of you went to public school? Anybody? All right. Gen Xers. That's what we did. How many of you went to private school? Awesome. How many of you homeschooled? I know before Tim Tebow, homeschooling was not cool. <laughs> Post Tim Tebow, it was the coolest thing ever. Can't read his own defense, but he'll get people to do schoolwork in their pajamas. How many of you... I say things. How many of you are considered a millennial? How many of you are generation X? How many of you are generation Z? How many of you are zennials like me and Billy Connor? How many of you grew up well to... You don't have to raise your hand for this. We don't even brag. How many of you were well-to-do? How many of you struggled financially? How many of you had Christian homes? How many of us were pagans? How many of us were Baptists, which is one or the other sometimes? <laughs> How many of you were independent Baptists? Anybody? Presbyterian? Methodist? Other? How many of you were Republicans? Keep your hands down. <laughs> How many of you... We're in Democrats' home. How many of you were libertarians? We're all over the room. Those things don't unify us. Here's what D.A. Carson says. I quote him a lot. Canada. Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income level, common politics, common nationality, common accent, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, not Moses, Jesus, that's me, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from loving, from living God, the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're in this together if we're anything. Because we're connected to one another, but we're connected through a king, verses 14 and 15. Connected through. Your notes say to. I changed the word to through. Connected through a king. Go with me to verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. What's our original confidence? Christianity is so unique in 2019. And the reason that I say that it's so unique is the term Christianity does not necessarily talk about Christians. It does not talk about Christian thought and Christian value. It talks about something that is other. It talks about a political ideology at times. At times, it's a word that's so vast that it's lost its meaning because if a word means everything, it doesn't really mean anything. The word is used by people who stand beside things that are contrary to what Scripture teaches. It's a word that's... And it, it's treated by many who claim to be believers as if it's bulletproof when in actuality, God's word is what's throwing things at it. We're connected through a king. And this king is the person of Jesus. And we see that what unites us in Jesus is that we have this confidence in his death and in his resurrection. And that is not bound by any human differences. Oh, I got to go to uh, Chuck Hill's funeral on Friday. And I didn't tell Christy that I was going to tell this story, but it was one of the best funeral services that I've ever been to. It was a celebration of a life of someone who loved the Lord, someone who lived for the sake of Jesus, and I'm, I did not know her dad at all, but I, I know that he more than likely had faults, but he loved Jesus and lived for Jesus. But when I looked around the room, it was unique for me. Because it's a different experience than what happens here. It was set up as a traditional worship service. And as I looked around the room, there were people from various generations. Some of them that were older than me. And some of them that may have judged the fact that I had on jeans at a funeral. And we had this variety of people who were there. And people from different generations. Like in front of me was Ashley Parker, who's a member of our church. Her five-year-old daughter. Uh, Older people, younger. We've got this group We're singing songs that I grew up singing in the hymnal. The pastor gets up to speak. Alan Trafford at Covenant is this great man of God who has this British accent that is so awesome. It's like listening to James Bond preach to you. You should go there if you want to take a break from Larry the Cable Guy sometime. But he's in a robe and I don't wear robes. But we start to sing how great thou art. 
And in this room with this variety of people, two rows in front of me, there is this sweet lady who's in her 80s, I'm assuming, who lifts her hand. That's what unites us with people of faith from every generation throughout history. That we are united in the person of Jesus and all that he has done has given us permission to say how great he is. She would not always love what we do in here. That's a testament to the work of Jesus. So we look at these texts and we begin to consider that we're connected through this king. That we as a people have been brought together by this king. And we see that in being brought together by this king, we've been asked, especially when we begin to manifest ourselves through these local bodies like this. This is our church, if you're a member here. If you're not a member here, we'd love to chat with you about that. But there are things that we are called to do together, regardless of our view of X, Y, Z, A, B, or C, and any letter in between. We are called to certain things together, according to Scripture, and if we're going to be people who trust Scripture then these things have to matter to us. I'll mention from time to time some of the various one another's in the Bible. I'm going to go through the, the full list of what we have been called to in light of one another. We have been called to love one another. We'll share this on Grace Bible's page. So you don't have to write these all down, but I want you to hear them out loud. We have been called to love one another. We have been called to serve one another. We have been called to accept one another. We have been called to strengthen one another. We have been called to help one another. We have been called to encourage one another. We have been called to care for one another. We have been called to forgive one another. We have been called to submit to one another. We have been called to commit to one another. To build trust with one another. To be devoted to one another. To be patient with one another. To be interested in one another. To be accountable to one another. To confess to one another again. To live in harmony with one another. To not be conceited toward one another. To not pass judgment on one another. Do not slander one another. To instruct one another. To greet one another. To admonish one another. To spur one another on toward love and good deeds. To meet with one another. To agree with one another. To be concerned for one another. To be humble toward one another. To be compassionate toward one another. To not be concerned. Do not be consumed by one another. Do not anger one another. Do not lie to one another. Do not grumble toward one another. Do not give preference to one another. Be at peace with one another. Sing to one another. Some of you not so loudly. Me included. Be of the same mind to one another. Comfort one another. Be kind to one another. Live in peace with one another. And carry one another's burdens. I read these to us to say, you being part of something bigger is not something that you get to choose if you follow Jesus. 
All of these things we're united in. So for the me and Jesus crowd, I just want you to know, you can only ride that pony so long. Because the Bible tells us another. It's not how it's designed to work. Notice what it says in 14 and 15. Thirteen, exhort one another every day. Who is exhorting you? Who are you exhorting? I don't know what exhort means, so break it down. Encourage one another daily. Who are you encouraging? Who is being encouraged by you? We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. We were having a conversation in my life group the other night about some of the conversation points that we had last week in our sermon. And as we were walking through the sermon, there is a place where I give you some dangers of drifting, some ways that you should caution yourself against drifting. And we had the conversation about how it would have been great if the pastor had mentioned community. And I agreed that the pastor should have mentioned community. So, let me give you that list again with an amendment. We know that we are in danger of drifting from the faith and not holding on to our original confidence in the faith when we do not want to fight the fight to read our Bibles. Secondly, when atonement does not matter to us. Atonement that God in Jesus was crucified in your place and resurrected on your behalf. If that does not matter to you, you are in danger of drifting. Prayer is unimportant. And lost people do not concern you. The fifth addition to that, that I believe will be beneficial for all of us, is that we would have people in our lives who can tell us when we're lying to ourselves about any of these things. Who's pushing you to be more like Jesus? It's supposed to be us, because we belong to one another. Who points out your shortcomings? It's supposed to be us, because we belong to one another. So let's do that. Because we're caution. We actually see we're connected through caution in verses 16 through 19. If you'll go there with me. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief but the whole phrasing starts by them acting and functioning as if they believed One of the scariest things in the world to me is the idea that we have people all over the world 
But even, I mean, let's just make it smaller because the world's a big word. Five letters, six letters, how a lot of letters. That there are people in our neighborhoods. And for some of us, there are people in our houses who would say they have a relationship with Jesus. But there is nothing whatsoever about their lives that says that that's true. And coming alongside of that, a great concern for pastors, this pastor should be, that the people who say that that's true, that fill this room every week, may not care about them either. They say they believe. What else am I supposed to do? You love them and you encourage them. And There's a phrase in Scripture that says that you, if someone doesn't live out their faith and you eventually treat them as an unbeliever. So how do we understand how we should treat unbelievers? You look at Luke and you see where Jesus sat down with tax collectors and sinners and he just loved them overwhelmingly. I, would, I am concerned for the apathy towards those in our midst who claim salvation that are not. By people who claim salvation and it's true. This passage is saying that that person... And you are united in the grand scale of church. And that should be enough. But there may be the possibility that they're united with us in this faith family. Having hard conversations for the sake of God and His gospel. Helping people reset themselves if they've drifted. To refine what Christ has done on their behalf if they've shifted. That's the purpose of the church. Because this is hard. And it is difficult. And it does not get easier. But there's a day coming where all that is wrong will be made right. Let us live to that end. I'm going to pray with you this morning. Lord, I pray that as a church that we always teach the implications of the original confidence. That we have been found by you and that we have been found in you and we have been found by and in you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If our Christianity stops sounding like Jesus, then let us be honest enough to stop calling it that. For us as a people, I pray that our hearts will be concerned for lost people. Because lost people matter to you. We call things lost because they're valuable. They are valuable to you. For those who are believers in our midst, who have shifted and drifted from you, if they truly have faith in you, let us live alongside of them in a way that sees them be reminded of the firm foundation they have in you. 
God, for these people in our midst today. Convict where we need convicted. Unite where we need united. Lord, let us do all of these one another's well. And when we don't do them well, let us let one another know. Let us be part of community. Show us how to hold fast the day-to-day functions of it. And let us walk away from this it's just me and Jesus stuff that's unlike anything the Bible teaches. If you need me, I'm in the back corner of the room.